This is Culture Communication and Brand Moments with Shelby Joe Long, the show that takes you around the world to share interviews with some of the most successful and relevant people on the planet, hear their stories, and get the most important business lessons they have learned on their road to success, and get exclusive advice on how to implement their success into your life and business. Culture Communication and Brand Moments is brought to you by the Strategic Advisor Board and your host, Shelby Joe Long. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the podcast today. I'm Shelby Joe Long. I'm CEO of Business Dynamics, CEO of Rogue Publishing Partners, and the Strategic Advisor Board Vice President. And I'm here today to on the podcast to talk to a business owner that has created a business and a lifestyle around their expertise. And I'm going to give a little backstory before I introduce our guest here today about how I know Steve Yano. Uh, Steve Yano and I have been in the same space for quite some time. We are both professors of communication studies and rhetoric at universities. We have both worked in the world of collegiate debate for quite a few years, and we've also had the opportunity to teach in debate camps all over the world and to help others discover the power of argument and how they can improve their own public speaking skills. We have crossed paths many times over and over again. Steve has helped me in some conferences and some tournaments that we've had here, and we have quite a backstory. And as I have started to transition or started to develop this entrepreneurship side of my business, where I take those ideas from communication and put them into the context of a business to help businesses better their brand, to help businesses better their culture, As I have done that, I've discovered that there is some more potential for Steve and I in our work together. And we'll get that to that later in the podcast. I'm going to introduce our new program that's going to come out in the next couple of months. But I wanted to introduce Dr. Steve Yano from St. John's University in New York. And Steve, I'll have you introduce yourself and talk a little bit about your background. Well, thanks, Shelby. That's uh, that's I think that intro is much better than anything I could have done. (laughs) Uh, but yeah, for your listeners, I'm a professor, I'm a professor of rhetoric, which is a fancy word for communication. I've been at St. John's here in uh, in Jamaica, Queens, New York for about 15 years. And I've taught, I teach debate, argumentation, public speaking, business presentation, all that kind of stuff. Um, and I'm a researcher. I, I, I study the history of American debate teaching. Uh, a lot of you out there might have um, done debate or speech, or as Americans call it, forensics in high school, or maybe your children do it now. Uh, so I study the history of that teaching a bit, and then I also just study what we call rhetorical theory, which is uh, systems of how we study and make sense of how people fight over the meaning of of uh, symbols, uh, which I would say is meaning making is what I'd call rhetoric, the fight over meaning making uh, that humans naturally do. Um, but yeah, I got my PhD from the University of Pittsburgh in Pens- Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, and I have a master's degree from Syracuse University in Syracuse, New York, and my undergraduate is from Texas A&M University in Texas, obviously. Obviously. Yeah, obviously Texas A&M, Texas A&M University in Ohio. I mean, that doesn't make any sense. <laughs> you have a very long history and lots of experience and many research opportunities that you have discovered. I want to talk a little bit about your interest in rhetoric and your interest in communication and some and why why there's such an importance in teaching these ideas about rhetoric and communication with your students, because I imagine that a lot of these concepts are going to, are very similar with why we need to talk about these ideas of 
clarity and communication in the business world. And coming from your research and background, I think that'd be a really great message to talk about the value of learning rhetoric and communication. Yeah. I mean, I think everybody listening probably is like, well, communication, obviously we need that in business, but rhetoric might sound a little stuffy, covered in cobwebs, kind of old. I I think that's the first reason the study is very old. Uh, Thousands and thousands of years of people writing about the question of, as you put it, clarity. We might, we might use a number of synonyms there, effectiveness, reaching an audience, getting your point across, things like that. But I think clarity is a good enough word for it, which would be, well, I have all these ideas. How do I get them out to people in a way to where they'll actually listen and consider them as such and not reject me on face or not interrupt me and in, in this kind of thing? That's the communication question. It's very old. Uh, and the other thing about rhetoric I think is important is that it's one of the very few things that's cross-cultural. It's almost universal. Like whatever culture you go to, whatever time period you look at that culture, you're going to find that they have rhetorical ideas, which are ideas about what is the appropriate way to present information. Uh, propriety is a huge part of communication that we don't talk about. I think in the communica- the business communicom literature that I've seen, it's not really talked about, but everybody kind of knows when it's appropriate to go to your boss and when it's a- appropriate to go to your boss's boss with an idea. And that's a very dicey and difficult situation. But the Romans talked about this. Greeks talked about this. The Chinese talk about this ad infinitum, right? Like just to the point of nausea, really. So those are some reasons there. I think people now very acutely aware of the importance of communication just because of the political situation that we find ourselves in, I think. And also, um, the last thing I'd say on that is um, people say, oh, rhetoric, I don't know. It's not for me. But I mean, think about your day. You're, You're listening to oratory most of your free time. Think about the popularity of podcasts. That's just a human voice with no uh, special effects like a Marvel film, no ILM, no Skywalker Ranch special effects. It's just somebody with a microphone like me telling you how it is. And that's super attractive to people. Podcasts, think about the TED Talks. It doesn't get more bare bones than that. That's something that people have been doing for absolutely for thousands of years have just been using their voice to get ideas across to other people. And we think of the TED Talks as, as quintessentially modern. And we think a podcast is quintessentially modern, but these are the oldest forms of sharing ideas. And now they're, they're just back around again with the, with different platforms. It's really kind of fascinating. And and we can talk about more about facts and politics a bit later, if you want to go that way, but I'll just stop there before we go down the rabbit hole and and alienate a bunch of listeners. (laughs) We could end up having a two hour long podcast Mm -hmm. rather than a 30 minute. minute. So there's you and I have had multiple conversations about all of these topics over the years that we have known each other and uh, I'm just wondering if you could talk about talk more about argument and mm-hmm. how argument is such a for me in my business and what I do with rhetoric and communication and arguments as far as helping business owners find that clarity and help make that connection with their potential clients and even with their current employees that it's such an important piece. But there's this whole idea about argumentation that is that's feels adversarial, but it's mm-hmm. not. Mm-hmm. And they're just, ha- just, I don't know, thinking differently about argumentation. Can you, can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. Yeah. The first thing I'll say is argumentation is super cooperative, but it's, it's, that doesn't really make it unique. It's in a long line of human things we do that are, that look independent and look like that we do them by ourselves, which are like, they're absolutely cooperative. So the first one I'll bring to mind is driving. 
like driving is not an individual activity. I'm, I hate to tell you, no, no matter how much you yell at these other people who are in your way, like if it wasn't for cooperation, it would never, there's so much more agreement that has to happen to get that to work. And argumentation is the same way. Uh, Kime Perlman and Lucy Ulbricht Titica wrote this book, The New Rhetoric in the 60s. And they say, argumentation is based on like much more agreement than disagreement, maybe five to one. I would say 10 to one, maybe, because you have to agree on the topic and where you're going to be and what counts as evidence, all these things. You know, first year law students can tell you there's really no agreement on evidence. It's one of the biggest books. You're going to 700 page book evidence and all the things the court has had to deal with over the centuries of figuring out what it means to prove something. We still don't know. We're still fighting, having that fight in every field. Um, but yeah, it's definitely cooperative endeavor and it feels adversarial. Um, I, I would point people. So there's an American rhetorical scholar named Joseph Wenzel. And he wrote this very influential essay where he said, you can think about argumentation in three modes. They all start with P. So they're easy to remember. Think of argumentation as a product. It's something we make like a bookshelf or like a house or like a business plan. So when you start to think of these things as arguments, you're like, oh, it's, it has similarities, the genetic similarities to these other things we make. You can think of argument as a, uh, a procedure. It's something we do to make something work. So we think of like traffic court, but we also think about like when you go in for your annual review and you're trying to advocate for your raise and what you've done, that's a, kind of an argument. You go through this procedure and then there's a process. And that's the one that's most interesting to me because process gets to this part of argument where it's the most cooperative, most interesting, which is it's something we go through in order to figure out if we're on the right track or even to figure out what the questions are. It's a process we go through. So that opens it up to science and medicine as argument. So I think if you think about it in terms of process, product, and procedure, you'll start to think of argument less as a, I'm going to, I'm going to beat you up. I'm going to destroy you. And more of a like, well, let's use this as a human communication tool to advance what it is that we want. And I think that's the way people ought to think about it is that Wenzel piece. He recently passed away. He's a brilliant guy. But um, that's that essay was really influential for me when I read it the first time. And I thought, wow, argument argument really is this kind of way of creating the world that we want. It's not about tearing up somebody else's world or subjugating someone to live in your world. It's about saying, here's what I think. Here's what I believe to be the case. Here's what I see. And then getting people's response or maybe doing it together. Product, process, procedure. And coming to an agreement and... I mean, it's, it's collaboration. Sure. And it's, but you can't collaborate unless you can discover all those possibilities. That's right. And, and the best collaboration is to say, well, I guess both of us were wrong, or we just don't know enough to judge this issue, which happens a lot of times, which is secretly why I think people are frustrated by argument. Yeah. Because the people, it's much better to be like the person who knows like, wow, you're so smart. You know, everything. Oh, people love that. It's kind of, it kind of stinks if you're, everyone's sitting around and they're like, what were you talking about? What were we arguing about? Uh, I don't know. Maybe that question's the wrong question, but that's so much more valuable. Right. So much more valuable. Right. There's a, and, and I don't know if you, I feel, I feel that there's a, that when you say the word argument and people, people just already tense up about it and there's, yeah. it's a, it, it, it assumes conflict in our vernacular that we just that's right. assume that that's going to happen. Mm-hmm. And I think that when I talk with business owners about, what their their brand and their message and how they're articulating, defining themselves to this audience that they want to speak to because they they want a business relationship they mm-hmm. want to have this. You're mm-hmm. really providing an argument to your client or potential client to talk about why you're the best match for their service and to talk about why you're the best product 
and why you should have a business relationship. Mm-hmm. And we have to think about those things as business owners, as how do we position ourselves, but a lot of it comes down to argument. So That's right. That's right. I use lots of food metaphors when I think about this kind of thing. <laughs> Mostly, I, I think it's because I think mostly it's because Socrates tried to diss rhetoric by calling it um, cookery in a famous dialogue. He called it cookery. But the best translation of that is like being a pastry chef, like you like make little cream puffs and stuff. It's just they're very dainty and sweet, and not very nutritious and probably pretty bad for you. And I always like to use food to compare to use the power of rhetoric just to kind of stick it to Socrates, who was very anti-rhetoric. <laughs> um, the uh, the the way I think about it is a lot of times a business owner will think. When a client's coming, they have to provide a four or five course meal with all the finery. So not only do they have to be the chef, they have to plate it. They have to be the nutritionist. They have to, to be the, the designer. They have to do the table decorations. They have to do the decoration, everything. It's just really not the case. Like you're going to fail if you think I have to be a jack of all trades kind of thing. What I think a lot of people miss on that is that it's more like a potluck. So when someone's coming into your business, they're bringing a lot of ingredients with them. And they're bringing a lot of stuff with them. Why not use that to cook with, right? People, audiences bring so much raw material with them that we kind of, we feel like we have to be the sole provider. It's just not the case at all. People bring all kinds of things they're interested in and background and history and stuff that you can use to really help you show them that they already know that that's the relationship they want. So I, I worked in sales for a while and, and this was my approach was to kind of ask more questions than, than answer them. I asked them questions about their life and well, I, I sold home appliances for a bit. And so I was like, yeah, what, you know, how often do you, uh, do you use a lot of frozen food or how often do you cook or what kind of stuff do you cook? I mean, oh, well, maybe you want a bottom freezer instead of a top freezer for this or that reason. Or maybe you want this feature because of what you told me. And this is what I mean by bringing the ingredients instead of trying to push them on what it's got. If there's no context, that's not going to work. Same thing with anything, whether you run a gym or whatever your business might be. I don't know. It's all about adapting to the needs of your audience, which is right. which is fundamental to to rhetoric, fundamental to communication. Yeah. And if yeah. you're not adapting to those needs, then then people are probably not going to adhere to your message. They're not going to understand that. And that's right. And, and, uh, and understand it, but they're definitely not going to move forward with the relationship if that is not happening. That's absolutely the case. And also, there's just so much like. That's incredibly important, but there's just so much joy in hearing somebody's story and where they come from and how they see stuff. And it's just like, I don't want to undervalue that. And that helps you with the next customer or the next client or the next relationship, because now you have this other perspective. And I can't tell you how often I've leaned on the stories and perspectives of others that I just kind of accidentally got by just being inquisitive and asking them a question they might not expect to hear when they're shopping for a new freezer or dishwasher sure. or whatever I was selling them. Right. And that those stories were great. I learned a lot myself and then it helped me with other clients. So there's really no, um, obviously you want to close the deal, no question, but then there's all these other things that have a value that's difficult to put a price on at the moment, but it certainly helps you make a deal later on, um, with some client you won't meet for months, you know? Right. Gosh, everything you're talking about, Steve, just ties. <laughs> It ties directly into what, I mean, for those of you that don't know, I do have my own business consulting practice. I help people create income streams out of their expertise. So I help mm-hmm. create digital courses and I help them create webinar series or what have you to be able to, to monetize and make a product out of their expertise so they can reach more people. Mm-hmm. And everything you just talked about, I mean, it's 
we have very similar backgrounds. So yeah, well, that makes <laughs> makes sense. But everything you talked about about adapting to audience and using mm-hmm. your story and mm-hmm. using that as identification. We'll talk about Kenneth Burke here in a minute. But Ooh, identifying, I'm excited. <laughs> identifying with your audience is such a key part to creating a relationship because it's not just a you're going to buy a fridge for me and then we're done. When you're in a service industry like mine, it's, mm-hmm. it's about an extended relationship. That's right. That's right. It, it, yeah. That, it's like constantly working that dough. That, it's like constantly working it, constantly stirring it. Yeah. And it's, it's not it's maybe something that's going to happen on the first call or the second call, or mm-hmm. the third call, but it is something those service providers that are putting together those larger ticket offers or that have a big thing to sell or even a small thing to sell. I mean, I, I use the example of the coffee shop all the time. Okay. You have, you have a, a choice of a hundred coffee shops in your town to go to a hundred places to get coffee. You can get it from gas station. You can get mm-hmm. it from Starbucks. You can get mm-hmm. it from black dog coffee. You can get it from target, but you, I choose to go typically choose to go one place. And because I like the coffee, I like the atmosphere, I like the culture, I like everything about that place because I feel that I identify with that place and they that's identify right. me. And so it's, you know, thinking about customer service and how that's all tied in together. That's all part of the, what I, what I refer to, or at least I connect to this idea of the enthymeme, right? That you yeah. mm-hmm. that match. So, yeah. I mean, I think this is the perfect example of why, uh, everyone's concerned. People say people don't listen to facts anymore to which I respond. No one ever listened to facts. You know what, you know how human beings are. We create a narrative of the kind of person we wish we were. Then we go and look for the information, the facts that support that story, story first, facts second. And if you don't take that approach, if you go with the facts first, like, Oh, I'm the lowest price. I have the highest quality beans. I have the best Wi-Fi, free Wi-Fi in my cafe. This isn't going to work unless there's a story attached to it. You have to have that narrative. People make decisions based on narratives of their aspirational selves. That's the most important rhetorical advice I could give anybody trying to go into business or, or, or develop client relationships. If they if you can't hook with that, you, it doesn't matter how many facts you have or how true they are. It just doesn't matter. No, it doesn't because facts, facts aren't persuasive unless they're right. in, situated in an argument. Yeah. In facts the- are like, um, it's like silverware. If there's no food. Okay, great. I have this fork. Awesome. Right. <laughs> and how do you work that? Yeah, it's just here it is. It's true and it exists. Okay, there's nothing for it to like stab or there's no nothing for it to do. No fun story. For it. Yeah, the story is the thing. So think about that narrative. Think about how people see themselves and what they want to see themselves as. It doesn't matter if they're actually that way. Right. Um, it's just how do they how do they tell that story of self? Sure. And mm-hmm. how and I, there's a few functions to that, at least that I see, is that it, it makes you vulnerable to your audience. Absolutely. Oh, yeah. And, and that vulnerability, I mean, then that connects with authenticity, right? That you're mm-hmm. vulnerable and you're allowing them into a part of you. You're not just trying to make a sale, that you're being That's vulnerable right. and telling your story and creating that connection. You're more concerned about the connection than you are about the afterthought of the connection. Absolutely. The connection. I think that's a really great word for it. That's absolutely. And vulnerability. Gosh, so much to say about that. That's such a powerful thing these days. Um, And it's hard to think about how to access that, but I mean, it can be simple things of being like, well, we're not the lowest price out there. We're not the cheapest, but you know, we try to offer the best price. 
stuff like that goes a long way. It's so small though. Right. Right. That's so true. We might not be the best fit for you, but give it a try. Let's see, you know, might not work, but this kind of thing. You're not going to know unless you take a chance. Yeah. Right. Exactly. Yeah. There's, there's a lot of those ideas. One, uh, one area that I wanted, I wanted you to talk about because, Mm -hmm. because again, in your area of expertise, um, I talk a lot about Aristotle and the yep. different speaking appeals. And then I talk a lot about identification and how those are mm-hmm. two very key concepts that are historically, I mean, that's from thousands of years ago. And we still mm-hmm. use those ideas and reinvent mm-hmm. those ideas. So talking about the history of communication and how that how we see that every day. Can you can you just talk a little bit about I mean, they're both very different, Aristotle and Burkhardt. Sure. Maybe ta- maybe just start talking about Aristotle and those ideas and how that in- connects with this a whole idea of brand and communication and business. Sure, yeah. Uh, Aristotle is such an interesting character. You know, he um, he's one of these people who we credit with inventing a lot of ideas, but maybe he just wrote them down. Right. So it's, he's a good case study for like note-taking. Cause like, you know, writing was not a big deal in ancient Greece when he was, there's oral culture. So writing was kind of the record of oral thought. So everything we have from him is very outlined. It's not very deep. It's kind of outliney. So yeah. he might've embellished when he spoke, he was a teacher. So when he ta- taught people, he might've said a lot more than was on the page, but he wrote about everything. He wrote about plants. He wrote about dreams. He wrote about physics. He wrote about animals. Well, they call him the first scientist. And the reason is because he's the first person we know of who prioritized observational data while well, I'm seeing these things happen and I'm going to make that just a given. And then I'm going to try to describe it instead of seeing things happen and make those the effects and say, well, the gods willed this and that. And the other thing He was like, well, let's just try to figure out why the leaves are changing color or why these ants do this. This is what I see them doing. Let me try to deduce. So that's why he's called that. Um, if you haven't read Aristotle, you'll be very familiar with it. If you use the internet, because it's very um, he's very much like a list maker. He's very clickbaity. Hmm. Um, he's very, I I always think of him like Buzzfeed. So he'll be like, you know, 10 characteristics of animals. Number seven might surprise you like this kind of writing. Right. So, um, it's hard. He's kind of hard to get into. It's maybe more interesting, I guess, for people out there, maybe look at the commentary, but uh, a couple of highlights. So, you know, he wrote this book on rhetoric where he sort of says, um, there are times when you're not going to be able to get to the truth, which was kind of a big deal for a philosopher to say at that time. Sure. There are times when you have to act because there are there are forces beyond your control. Time, the elements, um, a plague, um, the Persians, a never-ending source of drama for the for the Athenians. Um, the Persians are on the march. Whatever it might be, war, war with the Spartans, uh, and we have to make a decision pretty quickly, or it's going to be worse than not making a decision. So that's why rhetoric comes into play: is trying to move people in mass with the best reasons you have for why they should act. And so he, he's saying that this is a good tool to use in those kind of situations. So he provides this very narrow realm for that. And he's perfectly fine with dialectic, which is, you know, Socrates and Plato's method for if you do have all afternoon and you're like an unemployed bum, you know, <laughs> like Socrates, and you can sit around in the mall all day and talk about whether something truly is beautiful. Uh, that's fine. That's great. And you will get to the truth. But it's interesting because um, we kind of decry rhetoric as not being truthful. But I think Aristotle would say, yeah, absolutely. It's a tool that we use to try to make the best decision we can when we have shortage of time, shortage of resources, we're panicked, or there's some emergency, war, famine, plague, something like that, um, two of which we have experienced recently. 
Right. Right. We're waiting on the famine that's coming, I'm sure, with our luck. But, um, <laughs> yeah, war, you know, these these kind of things like you look at Zelensky and Zelensky's doing this Aristotelian rhetoric, like, you know, making these connections enthematically, speaking in a way that's very curt and short. Into He's not being truthful. I mean, he's not being deceptive either. He's not being true. He's saying, here's what we need. Here's why we need it. Here's why you should be motivated to supply it as directly and plainly as he can with the time and space he's afforded before he has to go run away to wherever the Russians are, are not bombing. Right. So that's a great example of that there. So I'd say that about Aristotle. I think Aristotle was a huge influence on my field, on our field for a long time yeah. about what makes rhetoric work. But Aristotle has some limits too. He's, he's not in a pluralistic society. Athenian, Athenians and Athens is not a friendly place for immigrants. I mean, we could argue that about the U S too. Right. But I would say the U S is a lot more friendlier than Athens. And we actually have a system for letting people vote and participate in politics, which the Athen- ancient Athenians did not have. Um, once a foreigner, always a foreigner. Right. Um, and there's no pluralism. They're all the same language, same gods, same religion. Uh, even if you're a Spartan, you have the same religion as the Athenians, right? Same sure. language, same history. So that's a different, that's a very different world from the United States. You have to wonder if Aristotle would say rhetoric is possible in a place that's so highly pluralistic and um, individualistic as the U.S. So that's that's what I would say about that. So I don't know if you have anything to add on that. We can go to Burke next, who's like thousands of years in the future. But that's what I say. That's what I say about Aristotle. He's still quite useful. Yeah. And interesting. And the enthymeme is just this idea of how powerful it is to treat your audience as a, as a co-conspirator and leave some of the conclusion up to them. Asking right. questions. And what do you think? Um, not really expecting a response. We might call it a rhetorical question. Maybe is the way you might think about it from your speech class or English class. For those of you listening out there who want, who want the trauma of remembering school, <laughs> uh, I'm the, I'm the guy to bring it to you. Remember when your teacher right. said, but um uh and i think oh, that yeah. those ideas are so important for those especially like in you know the challenges now that a lot of business owners are running into in the marketing area is how do i stand out in all of this social media and all of the noise that is out there whether it's businesses or political or how do mm. i stand out and how do i make that connection mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and i always talk about aristotle as the as the way to make that connection or the, to think about these emotional appeals and think about logical appeals and what is your audience going to like and all those things to connect with them the to stand out and to connect to them and move forward in that relationship faster than you would have if you hadn't thought about that rather right. than like throwing your throwing your picture up on a bus bench right that there's mm-hmm. more thoughtful ways to go about creating that message and creating the message of your offer basically before. Mm-hmm. That. So that's, that's where I contextualize a lot of that with in the brand space and within the business space. So, yeah, no, I think that's a great way of doing it. I I, I would say on that, think about why is it that, that true crime podcasts are so popular? That's like the number one podcast in the country, right? Maybe even in the world, I don't know, but I, I imagine it's pretty popular in the U S if not number one. And these true crime uh, podcasts, I think people like it because they like to try to think like someone else. Like, oh, what would I do? Or how would I, if I was the detective or, ooh, maybe they thought like this. And so it's like trying to ascribe motives that kind of gets us into Burke a little bit. But we like ascribing motives. So when you're thinking about your marketing, keep in mind that everybody loves to try to figure out motive. So in your marketing, if you put a person in a situation and you're having them make these choices, you want to leave it a little open. So people are going to be like, oh yeah, if I was doing, I would do that. And here's why I see these connections between me and this fictional person. All right. I see these kind of people love that kind of thing. 
they want some space to imagine the alternative. I think, so I was going to do a business um, a while ago. I, I, I didn't ever do it, but it was about using debate to help students excel in school, like these tutoring centers, like, you know, there's Kaplan, there's Kumon, there's all these after school tutoring centers and their methods are good. Um, and their methods are great and they have the data to support their methods of standardized testing. But I, I always wondered about other ways of measuring that. I wondered if debate could lead to success in things like literacy and success in school. So I thought about using debate and my marketing idea was like this enthymeme thing as, as well. It was just a photo from the back of a overcrowded classroom where the students are acting up and you have this one student with their hand kind of up a little bit and they're like five rows back and you see the teachers trying to like corral students at the front and then putting something on there is like, is your child, will your child get the help that they deserve? So it's about teaching them how to be more assertive. And so I thought this was a good thing about what you're talking about. It's like that imagination of being like, oh yeah, what, how do you do that? That's something I need. That's something my kid needs. Yeah. And children, business owners, uh, Mm -hmm. all of the, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a skill. Well, it's an art form, which we'll talk about in a minute, but it's, sure. uh, Yeah. I think that's a, that's something that's really key for people to, that they think about developing those skills where it's really, you've got to kind of live it. And yeah, that's right. Yeah. Or just like, imagine, wow, that's a problem I didn't know existed. Right. Maybe I do have that problem. Right. Yeah. Any, any comments about Burke? Can you educate us a little bit about Burke and the idea of identification and how that has to do with that connection to rhetoric before we yeah. start talking about the art of leadership? So. Yeah, sure. So um, quick thing on Kenneth Burke, 20th century American uh, man of letters, probably one of the last men of letters. I don't know if you know this old phrase. This is like somebody who just reads a lot of books and then puts ideas together. Like, you know, uh, he was not formally educated. But he had a project, his project is called Dramatism, where he wanted to eliminate war. So in the front of all of his books, he has ad bellum purificandum, which in Latin means towards the purification of war. He wanted there to be, he knew there would always be war between people, but he wanted to be cured. So no one would get shot. Nobody would get blown up. And he wanted war to just exist purely symbolically as a way of people settling disputes between hierarchies and differences and what symbols mean, things like this. Kenneth Burke has lots and lots and lots of different ideas. You can take a whole course in, in Burke if you wanted to. He's the most prolific theorist you've probably never heard of. Uh, wrote tons of books on everything from anthropology, sociology to literature, all this stuff. Um, and uh, I guess the most important thing is this idea of identification and division. So Burke says we have uh, all have the same nervous system, but our nervous systems don't connect. So how do we connect with each other? Through symbols. That's like an extension of the human nervous system through these symbols. So what people are always trying to do is they're always trying to show how close they are to these symbols through how they dress and speak. They want you to identify them as being as close as possible to this thing they identify with. He called it um, consubstantiality. Um, but um, that's always an imperfect process. And part of the imperfectness is that whenever you identify with something, you divide from something you don't know about. So let's say you're running a business, you identify yourself with something, some symbol, some celebrity, some figure, you are unknowingly setting yourself up distastefully to some part of your audience because they're like, oh, you like that person? Oh, you think that's valuable? Oh God, that means X, Y, and Z. I want to distance myself from you. So I think that's the most valuable thing about Burke is this idea of identification division. Uh, The other thing is that we, we always like to attribute motives to people. I've talked about this a little bit, so I'll be fast, but Whenever we see someone doing something, this is why we like movies, because it shows we see someone doing something and looking around and we're like, oh, they must be a criminal. 
oh, why are they doing that? We, we ascribe their motives. And then when we hear them try to explain it to another character, we're like, mm, they're lying. I know why they're doing that. And that's what makes theater fun. And Burke said, this is what we do all the time in politics is we ascribe motives to people, just like we would if we were watching a play. And then that sets up an attitude. So whatever you're presenting publicly or presenting to an audience, people are always trying to figure out why you're doing it. And they're not going to take your word for it. They're going to try to ascribe their own because people like to add into the story. And that's going to come with an attitude towards you and towards what you're saying and towards your business. So motive and attitude, very, very, very important. We'll never really know why people are doing things, but he provided this tool called the Pintad where we can rearrange how we ascribe motive. So we might say, oh, they used this. That means they're they're um, uh, frugal. Oh, but look at where they used it. That means that they want uh, attention. They're needy. Oh, but look at how they did it or look at the means of which they, you know, and so you can change all these things around and get different motives. And so that's, I think that's a powerful reason to look at Burke if you're thinking about that kind of thing. Attitude creation. Right. And then, mm-hmm. this is a conversation for another podcast that we need to do, but it yeah. just that all connects to just the polarization in our media and oh, yeah. Democrats and Republicans and well, that's how our media works. Yeah. And those yeah. are the, we, that we ascribe and identify or mm-hmm. disidentify with one group or another. And it's, it's perpetuated by our social media by many. Oh yeah. So that's right. Yeah. I mean, any, any cable news channel one is trying to set up an attitude and they, they're doing it to make you feel like, Oh, I need more of this. Cause it feels good to know what's really going on. Right. That's how they make their money. That's how they show you a bunch of ads for, you know, Applebee's or whatever. They're charging those people a lot of money uh, because they know your eyeballs will be glued there to see the water skiing squirrel or whatever after the break or the dog that has learned how to talk or a 96-year-old granny went paragliding or whatever the important news CNN thinks it is we need to know. Sure. And and that becomes, just to connect that for business owners, that becomes really important where they where they're positioning their offer in the marketplace. And That's right. where is their you know, is their audience on Facebook, right? Should you yeah. be dumping a bunch of money into ads on Facebook? Yeah, maybe tough question. Facebook, or maybe your audience is on LinkedIn, or maybe your audience is at a church, whatever that is, you've got to yeah. think about your business and position it where that identification become, can become the strongest. So. Yeah, that's such a good point. Because if you go to Facebook, what are they going to tell you? Oh, we've got your audience. But like, how do you really know? Like, are people really using Facebook the way you imagine they are? Right. How do people use it on their phone? Like, look at look at more data than just what they're providing you. I'd say it's tough. But beyond that, just think about, I'm not giving information to potential clients. I'm trying to create an attitude towards what I do. Yeah. What is that attitude you want your future clients to have about your business, whether they use you or not? They might not, you might not, they might not be your, your market, but they might have a friend at work talking about it and they'd be like, oh, have you tried da-da-da? I mean, I don't have a dog, but this place seems great. They seem, they seem really cool. They seem like the place that, oh, I don't really like pizza, but they seem really cool. Right. That's that's the power of marketing right there is that narrative of a friend at work who has an attitude about your business, even though they might not even pay you any money. They're responsible for all kinds of exponential money. Absolutely. Think about it like that. You know, that's the power of Burke right there, I think I'd say. Yeah, particularly with particularly in the business world. That's Mm -hmm. so I'm going to transition and talk a little bit about and I know this is a very new idea, but yeah. It's an exciting idea, though. It's an exciting idea, and it keeps have more clarity in my mind the more that we talk about it, and particularly in this episode. But just just talking about this idea that that Steve and I are going to propose to take these concepts of communication and rhetoric and debate and put them. It's all leadership 
training and mm-hmm. under, understanding persuasiveness and argumentation and negotiation and how to come up to to this collaborative solution how to position yourself and your offer in this marketplace and we have this really and I'm really excited about this idea and I, I hope you feel the same Steve but this art of leadership yeah absolutely and, yeah I think there's there's so much opportunity here for it's not necessarily providing training but it's just it's just thinking about leadership in a different way. In a conversation we had earlier, you talked about the difference between an art or a practice. Yes. Mm-hmm. Can you talk, can you talk a little bit about that and what that means rather than a skill set? Sure. Yeah. So I think arts are things that we practice. I don't think you can have skills for an art. And I fight about with this about my colleagues. A lot of people say public speaking is a skill. I think anybody who says public speaking is a skill is way off. They're wrong. Because if it was a skill, it would be like, um, there's this really good book. I wish I could remember the guy who wrote it, but it's called um, Shop Crawford, I think is the author's name, but don't quote me. Okay. Uh, Shop Class as Soulcraft. And he talked about how fixing a motorcycle engine or a car engine uh, is a skill set, right? There's certain things that are wrong. If there's something wrong with this part of the engine here, are the steps to fix it. But trying to, but getting to that point is the art of trying to figure out through lots of different kinds of indicators where to go. And, you know, you're billing this person by the hour. So it's in your business interest to make that bill as inexpensive as possible to provide quality work. You can't just go and check everything. That bill would be insurmountable. That person never do business with you again. So he's talking about running his motorcycle shop and how to figure out very efficiently and quickly what it is that he can use his skills for. And I think too often we think about teaching the skills and then we're fine. But it's teaching that art, that approach of where do I start and how do I know which indicators are false and true? Uh, how do I know which which path to go down in solving this problem? So what you have in the contemporary world is lots of people with lots of amazing skill sets and absolutely no capacity to know where the entry point is for applying that. So I think that's one of the differences between that. And so I like to think in terms of practice. So one of the things I always talk about is, you know, you go to the dentist, it says dental practice or family practice or legal practice. And no one ever, everybody laughs whenever I say this, but I'm like, I sure hope they're not practicing, right? Because it has that double meaning, right? It's like, you don't want your dentist practicing on you. I mean, I guess where I live, you can go down to NYU dental school and get a $10 exam from a dental student, $20 exam, maybe. But um, that's only if you're feeling really brave. You buy a lottery ticket on your way there too, right? You want to go to but, a um, professional. <laughs> yeah, you want to go to a professional, but they would still say dental practice. Why is that? And that's because they're indicating that they're going to do their best, but they might not be able to solve your problem. It takes some time and everybody's problems different. We have to be patient and, you know, um, you know, how you talk to people in law or medicine is as important as the skill you provide as a doctor and attorney, because you have to manage expectations and you have to make sure they realize that you're, it's a, it's a work in progress and it's going to progress for a while. And there's no, there's no timetable for it. So I like to think of things like, you know, we think about leadership as a practice and not a skill set. I think that's where a lot of people go wrong. And leadership is a practice because you're you're never at the point where you can say, I'm comfortable as a leader. I am a leader. I've made it. You know, this is like, well, it's like the old Olympics going back to ancient Athens. You know, they would give that olive leaf laurel, you know, they call it laurel leaf, but it was probably olive leaves. They give, well, that that um, disintegrates. Sure. There's a reason for that. They didn't give it gold or metal or, or stone, right? It disintegrates. Why? Because you're only as good as you were in that contest. And there's another one to come, right? I was watching uh, the Tour de France this morning. It's Tour de France time. I'm, I'm a big Tour de France yeah. Yeah. Uh, fan. I like watching that in the morning as I'm having my coffee. And 
was thinking about that. They're like, well, last year, this guy did this and this and this, and this year he's doing this and this. this. I'm like, yeah, of course it's an art. I mean, he's definitely got the practice. He's, he's done the repetition to get there, but all that matters is that one contextual moment of the race. Can he pull ahead? Can he right. handle the incline? And I think that's the way we got to think about leadership. It's not a set of, it's not a book you go to and follow like stereo instructions. Right. Or like building Ikea furniture. It's not like that at all. <laughs> I, think, I think the temptation is to think of it like that. And if you, if you have those things nailed down, then you're successful. But I think if you look at the best leaders in the world, they're constantly working on their art and their craft and their practice. They're constantly improving and that's constantly right. seeking out professional yeah. situations. And they're super transparent about it. They're amazingly transparent about it. They're just like, well, I don't know. I mean, you would think like the people who admire the most, they're supposed to know. But you look at some of these people who are who are the people who are consistently like, I would work for that person again. I'd work for that person my whole life. They're the ones who are like, well, I don't know. Sure. Maybe. <laughs> Part of their their charisma. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Like it's too, it's uh it's that you're seeking to improve, you don't know all the answers, and yeah. you're vulnerable about that. Yeah. And, and there's a there's a way of doing that. I think our I think what's exciting about our program is there's a way of doing that where you can do that comfortably and make progress instead of just being like, oh, you know, and then everybody kind of gets nervous and you have a mutiny on your hands. You don't want that. Like, you know, there's this kind of, there's a way of doing it. That's an art. I think that's what we're getting at a way of practicing that to make sure that people still have the confidence in you. They have confidence in you because you you're like, well, here's what we know, but we, we, you know, we have to figure it out. And I, I think it's, it's a, a, it's an important discussion for everybody to have, to understand mm-hmm. the art of leadership, to be a leader mm-hmm. in your own life, to, to, you know, position yourself so you can have the life you want. But the way that where I think it's, it has the, has a really nice application is within the leadership in, in corporate America, in the C-suite and yes. it's not even corporate yes. America, but it's the C-suite executives and the CEOs and the, and to make sure that those executives have, have those leadership or this idea of the art of leadership and how it's a constantly evolving thing. It's not something that's static. It's always dynamic and moving. And we have to think about those things. That's it's right. Be really fun to put together the ideas because mm-hmm. we're using a lot of the ideas that we've already taught and right. to, we're putting it in a different positioning it in a different place. I'm it's really free excited. college. It's free college. Right. Right. <laughs> tenured college professor. That's right. Yeah. Think about how much you'd have to pay for this. If you went to the <laughs> <Right>. university. <laughs> yeah. That's don't, a lot. don't, don't call them. Don't ask. Just but take we'll, ours. We'll put it in one program. The arts of leadership that's right. coming out in the fall of 2022. They yeah. have a date on it. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think the last thing I say about that is, you know, if you're thinking about, this is going to be a new perspective for you. One thing we don't think about is how many people are looking at us in our lives every day for signals of what's coming next or how to, how to feel. Yeah. Now, if you're in the C-suite, if you're an executive, you have a leadership role, your day-to-day is tough. Endless emails, endless meetings, endless people you have to call back. And then that's not even whatever's going to hit the fan that day that you have to, whatever emergency situation you have to handle that day that has to be done. Uh, we don't really think about who's looking at us for signals of how to feel. And that's that question of attitude. If you have a good leadership practice, you won't have to worry about that because people look at you and then they'll have the right attitude to be more productive for you, to work better for you, to have more confidence in what they're doing. Um, you know, a lot of people, they might not have the confidence in their project and the project, the timetable, that project expands infinitely. And they're like, well, I'm not sure what they want. 
we don't think about how often we're communicating through what we say, how we behave, what we act like when we're at work and how many people are looking to us for the signals of what kind of attitude they should have. And that's something we're going to talk about too. It's very yeah. Burkean. Very excited. Mm-hmm. Well, Steve, it's been wonderful to understand a little bit more about you and to learn from you about rhetorical theory, which excites me. And I'm sure it's going to excite other people. <laughs> we haven't even, we haven't even gotten started. No, we haven't even gotten started, but we do. Maybe an hour six, an hour six, I'll feel more confident. (laughs) There's going to be another, and we're going to do another interview. (laughs) I promise. Okay, great. But we are going to wrap this one up today. I do want to ask you, if people want to know more about what you do, I know you have a blog site. Can you talk a little bit about that? And then we'll make sure that the link is in our post about. Yeah, I have a couple of things people want to, to hear more from me. Um, I have, uh, my podcast in the bin anchor.com slash in the bin, which is a podcast on debate argument, public speaking, political speech. Uh, we do those not as often as, as I used to, but we have that podcast. Then I've got my Substack, which is sophisticsteve.substack.com, which is where I write about, um, mostly about political speech these days, but I write about debate and, and thoughts about that. Um, I just hosted a big civic debate conference here at St. John's and I have a piece yeah. on that. I'm going to post about what 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 I felt about how I felt about that conference, how I feel like the direction of debate is going uh, in this country. Um, you know, spoiler alert, it's not a positive piece. Uh, <laughs> and um, I mean, big, big shock to people who know me. Right. Uh, and then uh, other than that, if people are interested in my academic work, I have an academia.edu website, which I like to direct people to. So if you go to academia.edu and you search for my name, my site will come up and then you can see my academic publications. Yeah. Uh, if you have insomnia, I highly recommend reading some of my <laughs> academic work. It'll solve it right away. Right away. I Absolutely. just want to listen to you talk about it for sure. <laughs> okay. Awesome. Yeah. Well, there you go. Those are the three places to find me. Well, that's great. We'll make sure all those links are in the podcast site so we can so we can access those immediately and look forward to the Art of Leadership program that's going to come out this fall. Nobody more than me. Nobody more than me. I'm looking forward to reading it too. <laughs> It'll be great. We're going to have a yeah. program and we're going to co-author a book. So there's yep. a lot, a lot of fun things that are going to come out of it. Yeah. It'll so. be a good time. Well, thank you so much for having me on and thank you all for listening. And uh, I'd be happy to come back on your podcast anytime. Thank you. Had a great time. And thank you all for joining us again to discover how someone has created a career out of their expertise and how they're out there to influence others and trying to find other ways to influence other people. So we'll see you next time. Thanks for listening to Culture, Communication, and Brand Moments with your host, Shelby Jill Long. Please leave your feedback and visit strategicadvisorboard.com to get the latest and greatest business advisement on the planet. Follow us on social media for updates and we will see you on the next episode.